Are you a sneakerhead? Yeah, boy! A baller? Ballin'. Want to know about the hottest brands you can lace up and run with? Well, get ready, because we got all the details right here. Nice take by James. Oh, he stops! LeBron James puts it down in the face of James Johnson. Kevin Durant way outside. Delivers! Kevin Durant from downtown. It's a six-point game. And it goes off to Kobe. Good to ride Kobe underneath. Puts his nose on the line again. Makes the basket. He's fouled. Oh, what a play. And Kobe, after he was fouled, after the ball nestled in the net, he waved to a cameraman down in front. Says, take my picture, baby. Sixers running the break. Iverson accelerating to the jam. It's kicks and bricks where we got game on the streets, and on the court. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. And here's your host, Jamel Cutler. What up, what up? Welcome to Kicks. Joining me today is famed playwright and one of the brains behind Thoughts of a Color Man, my main man, Keena Scott. What's up, my brother? How you doing? Man, how you doing, brother? I appreciate you. I'm doing good. Man, how you? Man, no doubt, man. Before we get into Thoughts of a Color Man, can you tell us, you know, how did growing up in Queens help cultivate you as a writer? Queens is a big part of who I am. So as far as my storytelling goes, uh, being from Queens and being uh, raised um, you know, in, in Palmer housing projects has has a huge influence on how I tell stories, how I approach characters, and 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 how I want to pretty much control the narrative of of, of people of Black people um, from from inner cities and and from New York and, and Queens has had a big influence on that as well as me living you know in Southern Maryland as well because um, I spent a great time there you know pretty much a half a half but between living in Southern Maryland and, and being born and raised in Queens pretty much has definitely influenced. Um, how I how I how I approach my characters when I tell stories. So growing up in Queens, like, did you grow up around a lot of five percenters? Because I know in your area, they're heavy over there. I did. I did. You know, as a kid, I definitely remember. And, and you know, and a lot of my uncles was a part of you know the culture as well. So um, I, I definitely definitely grew up around five percenters. All right. So like, you had something interesting in your Insta profile, like, um, in the bio section, you put that you're the roles that Tupac spoke about. Like coming from Queens, like what are some obstacles that you had to overcome? I'm, you know, a, a huge fan and just a follower of, you know, um, the life of Tupac. And, you know, I, I love when he talks about, you know, of course, considering himself a rose out of concrete and, and you know, that famous quote he said, you know, um, if he doesn't change the world, he'll spark the mind of someone who does. And I feel like, you know, I'm definitely one of those minds um, that Tupac, you know, sparked with, with his with his with his life and how he led it before, you know, he met his demise. But really, um, just like any other in a city, you know, the obstacles growing up as far as um, lower income um, most of the time, which which affects your environment and the people there, as well as um, that reflecting low education as well. Just pretty much being in a, um, a underserved community um, brings a lot of negativity a, a lot of those times. So for me, um, and just navigating this world as a black man, there's been a lot of hurdles um, and things of that nature. But for me, and, and not wanting uh, my parents sacrifice and the things that they did and the rest of my family did for me to avoid um, 
falling victim to the streets, um, and just having to navigate all of those things and, and, and wanting to essentially uh, make my family proud and, and, and make sure I led a life that, that, was, that was positive and I was and actually having um, a positive effect on people around me. How did you find your voice as a writer? What was that process like for you? For me, you know, I started off um, in slam poetry. I started writing poetry at the age of 13. Um, like most kind of started off like, you know, journaling and things like that and using my writing kind of like as an escape um, or, or a place that my mind could go to when I really didn't want to uh, kind of face reality. Writing was that for me, that escape for me. Um, so I originally found my voice in storytelling through poetry. Then at the age of 15, I started um, competing in in clubs and underground clubs in the DC area. Then I started traveling and that's where I essentially uh, found my voice was in poetry. And then once I went to school to study acting at the age of 18, when I started studying um, more theater and reading more plays and studying playwrights, uh, that's when I really started getting into wanting to be able to tell my own stories because a lot of the stories I was reading um, as it came to theater at that time and what I was exposed to, um, I didn't see myself in it. I, I didn't see my culture. I didn't see my community in the plays that I was reading. So Therefore, I wanted to kind of take it into my own hands and start creating my own narratives. Playwright-wise, like, who are some of your inspirations? Definitely um, August Wilson, um, one of the greats. One of my favorite contemporary playwrights is Katori Hall. Reading her work, um, she's from the South. I want to say Katori uh, is from Memphis. And reading her work and how um, unapologetic she was with her characters and how authentic she was with her dialogue, um, with most of her characters being based out of the South really influenced me because that showed me as a writer that I could stay true to, to my voice and I didn't have to skewer or lighten up uh, my characters in any way. I can, I, can, I can write them unapologetically and I can write them in an authentic, truthful way. So Katori definitely um, inspired me uh, in, in that way when it, when it comes to uh, me and my playwriting. Can you tell us about Thoughts of a Colored Man? Yeah, Thoughts of a Colored Man is, is a piece that I originally started writing in college. Um, but the piece takes place um, in a gentrified neighborhood in Bed-Stuy. And it surrounds the lives of seven um, men. And through the use of poetry, uh, prose, music and movement, these guys are, are, are able to evaluate and try to find their identity in a changing neighborhood that they really don't um, identify with no more and and do throughout the piece you'll be able to see these these men explore the 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 range of human emotion my characters are, are allegorical um in nature my characters are love lust passion anger wisdom happiness and passion and you get to see these men interact with each other um pretty much in in, in their community what i like most about thoughts of a color man is that it addresses stereotypes yes. that black men are that black men are faced with. Um, um, can you talk about why was this an important aspect to address? Absolutely, I think as black men we're often labeled and we're awful, or often painted uh, with the same paintbrush, so to speak, where we're usually shown in the media and entertainment as being monolithic. And I wanted to show with these characters that we experienced the full range of human emotion, just like anybody else. So what I wanted to do in my play was show you these stereotypes with them, but by, uh, through the end of this piece, turning all those stereotypes on his head, um, as you see the journey of these men. And that was really important for me to, to, to show um, audiences that, that there's more to black men than meets the eye and, and um, way more than how we're usually portrayed um, 
when it comes to storytelling and, and media, TV and film and stage, I wanted to pretty much break down those labels, break down those stereotypes and really showed uh, truly complex human beings from different socioeconomical uh, backgrounds because that does exist within the black culture and especially amongst black men. I'm willing to bet that any black man can see some aspect of himself in this play. Do you think that's an um, accurate assessment to make? I believe so. Like I tell everybody, you know, I'm only one writer. These are only seven men. And in the spectrum that I tried to cover um, of our plight and our existence as black men, I think I do a pretty good job um, of doing so. So I do believe um, any black man sees this play, I do believe uh, he will see some, some remnants of himself or somebody that he knows for sure. From all the issues that you touched on within the play, um, did you deal with any of them personally throughout your journey in life? Absolutely. There's there was there's a lot of uh, myself in the play, and I, I sprinkled you know my DNA, so to speak, across all the characters. Mm -hmm. So there's there's definitely aspects of my life um, that I directly pulled from, and or and or um, someone close to me, or things that I've seen um, throughout my journey in life. You know, for example, one of my characters, depression. He works in a grocery store. So that was directly me. Um, there was there was a time that I worked in a grocery store, um, no problem um, doing so. But uh, there were certain experiences that I experienced while I was in that job that I that I directly pulled from my life and, and, and put on the stage. Thoughts of a Colored Man is coming to Broadway this fall. Like, um, and you have an all-star cast. You have Luke James, Keith David, um, Mac Wilds. I don't want to leave anybody out. But what was it like working with an all-star group? It's great to have them. Um, our first preview was October 1st. Open night is October 31st. We actually get into the rehearsal room on um, September 7th. So um, there's a couple of guys in the class, uh, in the cast like uh, Brian Terrell Clark and uh, Forrest McClendon that I've worked with previous before, but the other gentlemen um, I'll be new to working with and I, and I look forward to getting in the room with them after Labor Day. Can you talk about like the journey thoughts of a colored man took to get to Broadway? It's been a long journey, uh, my brother. I started writing this piece uh, 15 years ago, like I mentioned earlier. I was still an undergrad when I started writing the piece, and it's kind of been developing since. And really, um, I had a long independent career. Independently for about eight to 10 years, I produced a piece on my own, uh, maxed out credit cards, borrowed money from uh, from family and friends, You know, used my own, own money to kind of rent out theaters for weekends here and there. Uh, did workshops, you know, throughout the city, um, up and down the East Coast, you know, while I was developing it, uh, sent the script out to many, many people over the years to no avail. And then um, I really started catching some traction with this piece um, about four or five years ago commercially um, when I started getting attention of, you know, some people in the industry and it kind of built from there. And in the last several years, while it's been commercial, I've had to make certain developmental stops. So uh, to get to Broadway, um, we started at Arena Stage in DC um, we also did um, a short workshop at New York Theater Workshop in Lower Manhattan. And then we did a co-pro regional production with Syracuse Stage and Baltimore Center Stage. And then um, we was potentially supposed to come to Broadway last year. But of course, you know, the pandemic hit. And um, here, we, here we are now that this fall for uh, 2021. Were you inspired by for colored girls who have considered suicide? Because um, I was looking at that play a few weeks ago, and I kind of can see the, um, the resemblance between the two. Intozaki is definitely one of my favorite playwrights. Um, for Colored Girls is, is, is a powerful piece that was written in the 70s during the feminist movement. And Intozaki, like um, Katori Hall and August Wilson, um, definitely influenced um, my piece. Um, I love her use 
of poetry in that piece. And I do that as well, but really mine is definitely a new take. And I think I take some liberties and do some things differently than um, what For Color Girls has done. But Intozaki as a writer definitely um, had an influence on me for sure. So like you're mostly a behind the scenes dude. Have you ever thought about like coming on stage and you know acting yourself? Oh, absolutely. I went to school to study acting. I actually didn't go to school for writing. So um, I, I, I still consider myself very much so an actor. I've, I've done some work independently. Um, historically, through the life of uh, Thoughts of a Color Man, I've played multiple roles um, on a stage in my own play. So uh, right. in the beginning, I was I was writer, director, producer. I was a little bit of everything. So um, I actually still am an actor this day. Um, I've been inundated with a lot of uh, writing. Uh, recently and you know I had to do a lot of uh, reprioritizing to be able to get this script to Broadway but I, but I am still very much so an actor so um, in the future people will definitely see me um, in front of the camera as well. Who are some actors that you kind of pattern yourself after? Oh I wouldn't say uh, necessarily pattern um, I can definitely tell you that you know I'm, I'm heavily influenced by um, by Denzel um, of course one one of the all-time greats and watching him and his work um and really any any other strong black leads that that have been in movies um in from from in the past till now so i've studied the works of sydney portier um, um i love the work that jamie fox does that will smith does um i love i love playing characters um being a leading man is great um if you can ascend to that level but but i like playing characters so um anybody that is a great character actor i've pretty much studied their work What's like your best, I mean, your favorite Denzel movie? Like for me, is He Got Game. And then it's definitely one of my favorites. I'm a, big, I'm a big Spike Lee fan for sure. Denzel has many. Um, he Got Game is definitely up there. Malcolm X is definitely up there. Because um, of course, Spike Lee being my favorite director, of course, those two are up on my list with Denzel. Outside of that, um, I would have to probably mention, mm -hmm. I love what he did in Hurricane. When he played, um, I want to say- oh, I forgot Park, about that one, Boston, yeah. yeah. And I think that the real hurricane just recently passed away too. Oh, so I'm sorry to hear that. Say rest in peace to him. I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. Rest in peace to him. That was that was a beautiful movie and a beautiful portrayal. Um, and it was definitely a story that needed to be told. I kind of want to like transition to hoops now. Like I know you're sure, a big Knicks fan, but um, when did you first fall in love with the Knicks? Early on, man. You know, watching games as a kid with my father. Um, I remember watching those historic games and battles. Um, of Patrick Ewing and John Starks versus the Bulls um, back in the early 90s, you know, uh, watching all those great battles at that time. So I would say definitely the, the earliest Knicks team I remember definitely was 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 John Starks, Ewing, Oakley, um, Anthony Mason, that, that squad. That's probably my favorite all-time Knicks uh, squad in my lifetime. All these years later, we're still talking about the 90s Knicks. Can you talk about like the impact that they had on basketball culture and on the city during this time? I think the effect is everlasting. I feel when people talk about a true Knicks team and, and Nick culture and that Nick attitude, they're, they're talking about the, the 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 Oakleys, the Anthony Mason, the John Starks, just, you know, New York being such a big city, such a dense city, um, such a hardworking blue collar city. And, you know, everybody knows the rep um, that New York has. And I think that team embodied the attitude in New York. So when you talk about the Knicks and when you talk about a true Knicks team and who fits the mold of a, of a Knicks player, it's, it's that team. And I think that's the team that honestly created that that attitude and, and the new school 
so to speak, um, Nick culture. We know the you know the Knicks of old in the seventies were great. That's when we won our championship. But I think the, the the attitude that people think about and the culture of 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 Knicks is definitely that team. And then of course the team that followed right behind that, which also kind of had that that blue collar attitude, um, hard nose kind of team, was definitely that ninety nine finals team, which was you know Spreewell, Allen Houston, Larry Johnson, uh, Chris Childs, Charlie Ward, a um, uh, 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 aged. Patrick Ewan at that time, but uh, that 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 squad as well, and that squad I love too because I was a teenager by that point, and um, I think between those two squads in the '90s is really what kind of captivated the sports culture, the basketball culture with 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 that true like Knicks personality and attitude. Back then, my favorite Knicks was Starks. I used to like Xavier McDaniel's. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. all the players that was rough around the edges. Um, right, right. Yeah, Starks, too. He was my, another, my all-time favorite Knicks. Yeah. Um, do you think he's kind of like underlooked when people talk about players from the 90s? Because to me, he was right up there with like Reggie Miller and the other great shooting guards from back then. I think he is. I don't think John Starks is talked about or appreciated enough, um, because as we know, if you if you watch during that era, he he hung with all of them. He hung with the Reggie Millers. He he, you know, cost nobody's Jordan, but but he hung, he hung with that Bulls team. He hung with that Houston Rockets team. Um, he 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 was, he absolutely should be in the conversation as far as the '90s go as as some of the best players of that decade. And because he he battled some of the best and hung with the best during that era, so I don't think he gets enough appreciation at all. Back in the '90s, like you were a Knicks fan, but you also was a Jordan fan. Like, how hard was it to kind of like balance the two? knowing that Jordan was the guy that knocked us out the playoffs all them years um, and still rooting for the home team at the same time. Because to me, you know, him and Reggie Miller, those are like public enemy number one and two. Right, right. You know what, honestly, I wouldn't even call myself a Jordan fan as far as like the player definitely during that time. Um, I, I absolutely uh, rooted against Jordan and Reggie Miller for sure during those days. Uh, for me, uh, basketball culture, as we know, Jordan synonymous with winning and greatness. But um, when it when it comes to on the court and, and who I was rooting for, I, I definitely wasn't a fan of Jordan back in the day. I actually <laughs> um, I actually uh, hated him because of what he did do to the Knicks back then. But of course, not acknowledging his greatness and how he's synonymous with winning. I think we all can agree on that. But as far as back in the day and watching those games, I absolutely mm-hmm. uh, was not cheering for Jordan. <laughs> you know, and and for me, like I used to boo him on the court, but at the same time, I used to rock his sneakers. So for me, I was kind of conflicted. In I that couldn't way. afford them, so I, I, there wasn't too much dilemma for me. I, I I just started rocking Jordans recently. As as in a kid in the nineties, I definitely wasn't rocking Jordans. Um, you know, my, my peers did. You know, I, I used to see them, of course, but um, I I wasn't the kid that was able to grow up with Jordans. Mm-hmm. All right. So, like, what are your thoughts on the um, past next season? They made the playoffs after all these years of not being in the playoffs, being in the draft lottery. They made the playoffs with basically Julius Randle and um. And a whole bunch of you know, career guys, career guys that um, that's been bouncing around the league. So yeah. just talk about like your thoughts of this past next season. This is this is the first time in a long time I had faith in what they were doing in the front office with the Knicks. Um, I think what the Knicks showed they could do this year truly um, made us look um, appealing to maybe some other free agents that can come and join the team. But I think the Knicks and what Tom Thibodeau did um, with uh, rejuvenating the culture of the Knicks and kind of bringing out that, that hardcore, mm-hmm. 
hard-nosed defense back to the city, I think is great. And this is the first year I really felt that Knicks did something great to where we can now, we can really start building upon the foundation. Because, you know, historically with the Knicks, once once we started, you know, becoming a playoff team and, and we showed some promise, we would trade the whole team away and then kind of start over, um, especially, you know, love Camelo to death, um, one of the one of the greats. Um, but we, we had a great team, and during that time, letting go a lot of our players, I think, hurt us, and we see the ripple effect of that throughout the years. But this year, I was, I was very happy to see where the Knicks are at. I think we have some great pieces. We definitely a few pieces away, of course, to be, you know, a finals team. But I think we finally have a team that some free agents can look at and say, hey, you know what, if I add myself um, to the chemistry and, and the things that's going on back in the city, I think, um, you know, um, I can help elevate the team. So I think we have that now. Hey, man, don't hold your breath on the next trade and, you know, like their whole team for one player because, you know, Dane, he's been mentioned in some trade rumors and I definitely don't want them to um, trade, like trade the house for, for, for any one player. Cause that's basically the Carmelo trade all over again. I hope that doesn't happen. I love Dame. I would love to see Dame in the city, but I don't want to see anybody come to the team at the expense of trading the whole team away. Um, I think if, they, mm-hmm. if we find a way to kind of keep some of our, core pieces and and add Dane to that. I think that would be phenomenal, but no, I do not want a Camelo Anthony situation all over again as a fan. <laughs> do you want Melo to come back, you know, kind of in his career with the Knicks or like, do you kind of want to see him win the ring like with the Lakers or, you know, one of the teams out West? You know, I, I would love to see him win a ring. I would love to see him win kind of on his own terms. Um, it would be great to see him and LeBron play. I would like to see them, honestly, maybe in their primes play together a little earlier. Kind of, you know, I would have loved to see LeBron link up with Melo kind of like around the same time he did with D-Wade um, and Bosh. Um, right now, I don't know if I want to see that, but I do want to see Camelo win a ring, and I would love for him to go somewhere where he could potentially do that. Um, I don't know if I want to see him necessarily at the Lakers at this stage in his um, career, but I would love to see him go somewhere with some great pieces to where, you know, he could, he could add to that and potentially um, get to a finals with a new team. No, it's crazy to me that the um, stat geeks had him out the league for for a year and a half, man. And I'm so he could not have been out the league. That there's there's no way a Camelo wasn't good enough right, man. to even be in rotation on any team in the NBA. There's no way that a team um, could explain not having a, a Camelo Anthony on your team. It's it was utterly ridiculous to me. I'm glad that he was able to land on the blaze of somebody that knew he added value uh, to the court, but. That that was that was crazy to me. That that never should have happened to a player like, like Melo. Yes, clearly he's not in his prime. You know who is still in a prime from his draft class? None of them. And 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 for for nobody in the league to see value in what Camelo could bring to the table because we all know Camelo's a bucket. He he going if 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 he ain't gonna do nothing else, he gonna give you a bucket, um, which he's clearly still doing. Um, so yeah, that never should have happened. Another player that kind of had a resurgence over the past year too was Derrick Rose. Like, what do you think about? you know, his um, resurgence under Coach Tibbs. I think D. Rose is a, is a, is a great basketball player. IQ-wise, I think he's better than what he was before. Clearly, he doesn't have the same athleticism mm-hmm. um, after the injuries. And I think athletically, you know, he, he was – he was what Westbrook was doing hands down before the injuries. You know what I mean? We, he was the youngest MVP the league's ever seen. Um, so it's, it's good to really see him kind of find space back with Thibodeau again and, and kind of like find his kind of find his uh, his his niche and his lane where he's at with his career right now. I, I thought it was a beautiful thing. And hopefully, you know, he can stay a Nick. I think he fits the culture. And, and I love the play he is, um, you know, when healthy because his basketball IQ is, is definitely higher than it was when he was younger. 
All right, um, do you think Randall is a Batman type of player? Because me personally, I kind of see him as a number two more than um, you know, you know, you know as I, the I, first I, option. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that. You know, I, I think, you know, like he was this year, he's shown that he could be a first option. I think that started coming to question because of um, he really didn't show up in the playoffs like people expected. I think he is a number one option. Um, but also, I think he'll be great in the number two. And, and only saying that because if we get somebody that is that is a number one option, that has been a number one option throughout their career, um, that would just uh, bring the load off Randall a little bit. And as we know, it's hard to carry the load in New York by yourself, not only just with the team, but with the, with the media presence. So I do think he's a number one option, but also with, with, with somebody else that historically has been the number one option longer in their career. Um, I think that would serve him well, you know, even if he does have to move down to the second uh, position. Are you a fan of IQ? Because, you know, his game has really grown on me like this past season. And I'm kind of looking forward to seeing more of him next year. He's phenomenal. I don't think nobody expected for him to have the re the rookie season he did. Um, and, and for him to showcase what he did in his rookie season, it's only up from here. So he he showed he showed me a lot this year. So I'm really looking forward to um, him growing and seeing where he goes. And once again, hopefully uh, the Knicks uh, don't pull a Knicks and we actually keep them <laughs> and develop them. Um, because as you know, we, we, we get these players, we let them go too early, and then they grow into these great players and or role players for other teams. So hopefully we keep them, we develop them, and, and kind of let him grow into the Nick culture and, and hopefully in a couple of years lead the young guys that can come under him. But but quick quickly, he's a great player. You know, one young player who I'm still kind of on the fence about is um, R.J. Barrett. You know, I, 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 like, I just don't want him to become another version of Andrew Wiggins. You know what? I don't think he'll be Andrew Wiggins. Um, sad to say, I think in a league now, man, we give these kids five seconds to be stars, man. We don't give them enough time. I think he 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 had a huge leap um, from first year to second year, and I think he's going to make another leap uh, next year. I think he has the DNA. I think it's already in him. I just think we needed to give him a little bit of time. And, of course, with Nick culture, we expect everybody to come in and be the savior automatically. And we forget that, you know, that, that you know he was 19 when he came in. He needs a little bit of time. I think he's going to make a huge leap from his second to third year next year. So I don't I don't think he'll be a Wiggins. Because I think w Wiggins have, has already, in my opinion, reached his ceiling. Um, and RJ has is nowhere wow. near his ceiling, I don't think. <laughs> You know, and another guy I kind of have my eye on is, you know, Obi Toppin. He's he's from my hood, hometown kid. You okay, know, okay. I know, you know, I know Tibbs don't play rookies, but um, I hopefully next season he'll be more in the rotation cause, because he kind of showed some flashes, you know, during the playoffs. He'll, he'll, he'll definitely, of course, you know, born and raised New Yorker. So, he, of course, he has the attitude. He fits the culture. Um, I was excited that we got him. And, and I think it was good for him to, uh, to, you know, come off the bench when he did to kind of show flashes of what he could potentially do. I definitely think he'll be more in a rotation next year. And honestly, man, I think sometimes it's good, you know, to, to, to be on the bench as a rookie to kind of sit, learn the speed of the game, learn the game, learn the culture, learn how to be a pro before you really have to go in there and the whole franchise is thrown on you. So I think, honestly, he, he might end up in a better situation, not being in a rotation as much and really just being able to learn his first year. So next year he can really, you know, make strides in the game when he does come in. And, you know, what was crazy to me, like he was one of the oldest people on the team and he's like a rookie. To me, that was crazy. Yeah, 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 because I, cause I want to say he stayed in all four years, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he was older than Frank, um, 
older than Kevin Knox, and these dudes been in in a league three or four years already. Right, so, right, yeah. yeah, because because Knox came out uh, freshman year, quickly did as well, um, and then then yeah, RJ came out freshman year, so yeah, that that makes sense because um he 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 was a he he was a four year guy, but so he he got it in him, he got mm-hmm. it in him. Um, I don't like the uh, the narrative that surrounds four year players sometimes because at the end of the day they was able to develop more um, into the, into the uh, collegiate system. So once again, once he gets into the rotation, I I think he'll shine. You know, I kind of hope he kind of turns into kind of like like Buddy Hill, like he played four years and even though he's stuck on Sacramento, you know, he's still putting up decent numbers, you know, 23, 24 points a game. So you maybe know, those, those, those guys Yeah, those those guys can ball, man. And I, I think, you know, it's it's like it's a, it's a lose-lose for the guys, right? They come out early mm-hmm. as freshmen, you know, they say, oh, they got a high ceiling, but then when they don't produce in that first year, we judge them. Then when a guy stays for four years, develops in college, has a as an all-around package and game, we fault him for staying in college for four years. So as fans and as in I think the basketball system, we have to find that balance between judging the young guys too quick and judging the, the, the older ones too harshly because those are the ones that do come in, you know, developed and kind of ready to go. But we 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 assume that their ceiling is low because they did stay in college four years. And I don't think that's always the case. You know, have you seen Luca Vildoza play? I mean, like, I think he's ready to go. I've been watching him play for Argentina for the, these last few days. You know, I'm very excited for us because he, because he can shoot from curry range. And that's been our main weakness the whole last season. Absolutely. I haven't seen him play um, as much as I, I, I would like, but I've definitely been, you know, seeing some highlights and, and seeing some, some, some write-ups about him. And, I, and I'm definitely excited about him as a player for sure. Like, do you have any off-season additions that you want them to add? Because me personally, I want Lonzo Ball, and I kind of want Buddy Hill too. Um, honestly, I think they both would be great. I think, I think you know, Zoe got a bad rap. You know, starting off with the Lakers, which was a lot of pressure. You come in, then you have to play with LeBron. Um, and and once again, he was one of the people that we didn't let develop because of how he came into the league with so much noise, so much attention around him. I would love to get Zoe. I think Zoe basketball IQ is great. I think he he's he's done a phenomenal job with um, uh, uh, shaping shaping his form for his jumper for his improved jumper. I, I would love to have him. Um, of course, ideally, I think we will all want Dame, but I think Buddy Hill and, and getting Zoe, especially mm-hmm. be able to get both of them and add them to the core pieces of the Knicks, I think that's more exciting to me than Dame because, like like we said earlier, getting the Dame, that scares me because I feel like we would trade away the whole team. So I would prefer to get somebody like a Zoe, a Hill, and uh, keep on building what, what, what we already have versus letting the whole team go and starting over again. We don't need to do that. We showed that we're a playoff team. We just need to, you know, cut – Keep on trimming the fat, and then and then keep on adding the pieces, and and, and remain a playoff team. That's the goal: remaining a playoff team. Mm-hmm. You know, and Zoe kind of fits Tibbs' system. You know, he's a defensive point guard, long, lanky. Pass you know, first. He's a, pass first too. He's a um pr- he's a pretty good three point shooter. Like I think he will fill so many holes for that team. Absolutely, I agree, hundred percent. I would love to have Zoe. I've always been a fan of Zoe's game. And I and I always ask Knicks fans about this about the Nets. You know, even though they did get eliminated by the Bucks, did you feel any joy seeing them go home in the second round? You know, you, you, that's funny. You know, um, my, my my little brother's a, is a Nets fan, but he's twenty years old. Um, you know, um, I think us being a little older, like 
oh, oh, you know, coming from, you know, uh, old school New York before, you know, it got gentrified, you know, diehard Knicks right. fans. Um, I wouldn't say it brought me joy, but, you know, because I don't I don't really give uh, them enough energy. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, I was more concerned about us getting to the second round. But um, but yeah, I, I don't know. You know, of course, you know, they, they, they stack. They got great players. They definitely fun to watch. Um, but I'm a Knicks fan, so I really didn't have a dog mm-hmm. in a fight with that one. <laughs> You know, and the Nets, they're not even like really vindictive of the um of what Brooklyn really is. They're basically the the gentrified Nets. A hundred percent is funny. Me and my friend was talking about that the other day. I was a huge fan of the the the, the old Nets teams with uh with Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin, Kittles, mm-hmm. um, um Jason Richardson. I used to I love that squad. So that squad to me felt like a Jersey team. Um that had that Jersey DNA. I think Nets are still trying to find themselves. Clearly, it's a newer team. Um, clearly, I know they're trying to um, embody the Brooklyn culture, but once again, you know, Brooklyn culture has changed. So I think they're trying to take the old uh, culture of, of of Brooklyn, and but but with a mm-hmm. with a new twist. So I guess that they'll they'll need some time to really find out for themselves. But you know, the 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 Knicks are the Knicks, and the Garden is the Garden. So that that's where I'm at with that. You know, when the whole gentrified thing really hit home for me, I was covering a game, a Nets game a, a few months ago. It was a regular season game. DMX had just passed away maybe, you know, a week or two before, you know, and they had this country dude, white boy, singing, where my dog's at? I'm like, I just couldn't believe it. A little different. <laughs> I don't have an answer for that one. But yeah, that's, you know, that's, 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 that's different. Like, I really couldn't believe what I was singing. Like, of all the dudes in Brooklyn, this is what you come up with? Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> I feel that for sure. <laughs> man, they had Biggie Smalls turning over in his grave with that. Yeah, man. You know, but but, but one thing I, I do like um, with the, with, I, I love the uh, the aesthetics. I, I, lo- I love mm-hmm. how they, 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 they lean into, you know, the, 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 the Biggie and Jay-Z ad-libs at the game. I love how they got like mm-hmm. the kind of the, the Coogee, the Coogee print went um, with, with oh, the yeah, jerseys. Facts, yeah, I like I like how they have like the uh, the Basquiat uh, font for the for the Brooklyn and all that. So I, I I love that they are paying homage to to legendary Brooklyn natives. So I do I do appreciate the, the team and the organization mm-hmm. doing that. You know what would mean more for for the city if the Nets win a title with a super team, or if the Knicks win a title with an actual team that developed together, you know, and went through the aches and pains of, of getting to that championship. Oh, Knicks, hands down, hands down. Everybody knows in basketball, the league is better when, when, when the Knicks and the Lakers are good, period. Mm-hmm. Um, I, same, same thing in, in baseball, when, when the Yankees and the Red Sox are good, you know, it's, it's, it's better for the game as a whole. So um, the Knicks winning for the city, you know, I know the city, you know, has Nets fans, but overall, this is still a Knicks town. You know what I mean? So the Knicks winning a championship, you, you you know what that would be. You know how to, I can't imagine it because, you know, they haven't won in our lifetime, but I can mm-hmm. only imagine how crazy the city would be. Not only if we made it to the finals, but we actually won in this, in this generation, because it's been so long, the city would go way more crazy if they won over the Nets, hands down. You know, while we're on hometown heroes, you know, Sue Bird, she's from your area in Queens. She's winding down her own career in the WNBA. You know, what type of impact does she have on you as a Hoops fan? Oh, she's one of my favorite players all time, period. Man, you know, man, man or women, you know what I mean? Her and Diana Taurasi are, t- are two of my favorite uh, female ballers. 
hands down two of the best, I think, to ever play in the WNBA. And ironically, when I was playing ball when I was in high school, they were the main players at that time at UConn. So that's when I kind of really mm -hmm. started watching um, women's sports in a major way. Because um, as you know, if you are familiar with when Diana Taurasi and uh, Sue Burr was playing at UConn, they was going crazy. And I think they was the start of like those winning streaks that the UConn women go through, kind of like that whole not losing a game in, in a year or two, mm -hmm. like those long streaks they have. I think them two were the start of that. So for me, I was in high school during that time. So that's when they kind of sparked my attention of, of, of watching them. And, and of course, Sue, Sue Bird being from the town, um, you know, it was extra icing on it. But um, but no, they're, they're phenomenal players. And I, I've, I've loved watching their whole careers. You know, a lot of people, they're searching for the next Kobe. They say, this guy's the next Kobe or this person. But to me, I think the closest player to Kobe is Diana Taurasi. That, 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 if, if you want to make a comparison um, to, to the WNBA, to the NBA, um, and you want to talk about age as well, because I think relatively mm -hmm. they're around the same age, um, Diana Taurasi is definitely the closest thing to Kobe and what she's done for the, 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 the game. And what she's done for the WNBA is, for me, similar to what Kobe did for, for the NBA. So mm -hmm. I think that's a great comparison between them two. You know, over in the, on the NBA side, Stevie A recently called Devin Booker the next Kobe. Like, is that something that, that you can kind of foresee, you know, five years down the line? That's hard to say. Kobe is it's only one Kobe, just like there was only one Jordan. I can see the comparisons because of Devin Booker's um, fluidity in his game, his footwork, um, and his skill set. But the mentality of Kobe, his work ethic, I think is unmatched. I think he's the hardest working, smartest uh, basketball player that we have yet to see. So to compare somebody to him is kind of tough for me. I understand as far as from a technical skill level and and and, and footwork aspect, I can see the mm -hmm. comparisons that you know, they make with Booker and Kobe, but do I think he's going to be the next Kobe? Um, no. And it's kind of hard when you start making those comparisons because you're comparing a player to someone who, who got five, you know, he got five rings and, and he'd been to the finals. I want, I want to say seven times. So um, if Booker was to be the next Kobe, um, he has a whole lot of work to do. And I think um, for a young player like him, that's daunting. I think we're just better off letting him carve his own path versus trying to mm -hmm. put him in the lane with Kobe, because if you do that, he'll never get there. Just like we, we did it to Kobe. We put Kobe in the Jordan lane. We understand their games are almost carbon copy, but he was chasing ghosts. So I think um, it's better off to, to, to not do that to, to, to book and have him chase the ghost of Kobe, you know? Before Kobe passed, like, I don't even think he was scratching the surface on everything he was on course to accomplish in life, you know? Oh, he was, um, he, was, he, was, he, was he was just going into second gear, you know? Basketball mm -hmm. was his first gear and already shown, what, three, four years in retirement, he, he already won an Oscar. He switched gears into uh, storytelling. I think he was becoming this huge champion of the women's game, which um, I feel is needed um, for, for, for not that game to elevate because the game is already elevated, but as far as the notoriety that these women need and deserve, um, he was going to be a champion of that. Um, clearly, we saw what he was doing with Gigi, um, but we, we saw him going into that second gear. We saw him, um, be, you know, even becoming an even better father, a better man and all of those things. So I think he absolutely was scratching the surface. And I think Kobe had a lot, lot more to go. Thoughts of a colored man. Which character would a young Kobe kind of be featured in? Wow. Um, out of all my characters out of the seven, um, yeah. I won the my character's name. Young Kobe, um, one of my characters is named Passion. So I, I would see Kobe playing Passion um, because 
if, if you know the the last thing you can say about Kobe, he definitely didn't lack passion. He was very passionate. He was very fiery. And um, so, if I had to pick a character for him to be in, in, in the play, it would definitely be uh, my character, Passion. All right, man. So I think that's a good note to end on. You know, I want to thank you for joining me today. You know, throughout your journey, you prove it's not where you start, it's where you finish. And I'm looking forward to the return of Thoughts of a Colored Man this fall on Broadway. Man, thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for wanting to interview me. And um, had a good time, man. It's, it's, it's always a good oh, night. No, no doubt, talk, man. Talk sports and talk Knicks. <laughs>